I'd like to read to you this morning a few verses of scripture, first of all, this from Revelation chapter 2. verses 9 through 11. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. I'd also like to remind you of the opening verse of hymn 186. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Let me give a little word of encouragement to those of you who are having some trouble understanding me. Uh, if you have questions, if there are words that you don't quite get, uh, please don't hesitate to jot them down, come and ask me about them, and I'll try to sort things out. In 1920, H.L. Mencken M-E-N-C-K-E-N, that irrepressible iconoclast from Baltimore, there you go, <laughs> and write that one down, <laughs> said uh, that Southern civilization, undoubtedly the best that, West, that the Western Hemisphere had ever seen, had been ruined by the Civil War and had now fallen into the hands of plutocrats and Protestant barbarians. <clears throat> we might well guess who, according to Mencken, the Protestant barbarians were. It would be obvious, however, that as he became aware of the career of fellow Baltimorean, J. Gresham Machen, here was an exception. Not that Mencken had any real sympathy for Machen's religion or any interest in what he called high and ghostly matters. Nevertheless, Mencken saw in Machen not just another impressive intellect, 
but a responsive soul which, like his own, was melancholic for another world. For Mencken, that other world was, by and large, the one of which J. Gresham and he had seen vestiges in their youth. Artistically and intellectually assertive, it exhaled a wonderful spirit of freedom and individualism. Much to its credit from Mencken's point of view, it was neither puritanical nor Victorian. Both terms he considered reprehensible. For him, they were swear words. Mencken's other world was not overlaid with nostalgic sentimentality, a longing merely for the old South. He perceived in this other world of his a realism, a combative militance that fueled a fire deep within his heart. New money, and its gospel of prosperity attended the emerging industrialism. But industrialism was heresy, and creeping standardization was its catechism. Bureaucrats, corporate and civil, were the new clerics, the new clergymen. Canon law for this new world was a melting pot uniformity, a uniformity that Mencken judged lethal, if for no other reason than it was dull. Active, energetic, but trivial and dull. Still, <clears throat> developing urban centers had no monopoly on triviality or banality. As Mencken's contemporary, Sinclair Lewis, described it, rural American life was boorish, repressively stupid, and hypocritical. Have any of you read Sinclair Lewis's Main Street? But whether urban or rural, the ugly culture of developing America was driven at its deepest level by materialism. Enter that sensitive poet of the previous generation, the Southern poet, Sidney Lanier. He had excoriated uh, the deception of materialism with words written in the 1870s. This is what he said. Trade, 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 pa, are we not all sick? A man cannot walk down a green alley of woods in these days without unawares getting his mouth and nose and eyes covered with some web or other that trade has stretched across to catch some gain or other. T 
Tis an old spider that has crawled over our modern life and covered it with a flimsy web that conceals the realities. Ah, but what were the realities? The older fading world, that world of southern culture, that world of Sidney Lanier's short life, the older fading world that he knew claimed to know the realities, presumably Mary Day, D-A-Y, Sidney Lanier's wife knew them too, as did her lifelong friend, Minnie Gresham. These two gentle women from the South, Mary Day and Minnie Gresham, lived lock-step. They were inseparable as girls in Macon, Georgia, and after their respective marriages, they found themselves together again in Baltimore. The year 1881, however, saw them straightened by contrasting pains. In that year, Mary's husband, Sidney, died of tuberculosis in the Carolina mountains, while Minnie presented her husband, Arthur Machen, with a baby boy, John Gresson. The home into which John Gresham was born saw the realities of which Sidney Lanier wrote along straight religious lines. For Lanier, religion served a serene and aesthetic ideal, the grandest gospel as his poem, The Symphony, written in 1875, proves, suggests was music its power, humanity's hope. The Machins, however, revered the church. Still to a degree, but a very definite degree, revered was the idea, the idea of the church. That idea not disassociated from a wide vision of culture, not so much Calvinistic as Presbyterian in more than any denominational sense. Only certain directions were possible ecclesiastically for a family that had the standing of the Machen family. These directions transcended the peculiarities and differences that plagued others. The piety attached to this family smacked more of respectability than profound holiness. Here was an atmosphere, in the words of a Machen family member, far removed from life in one of those, quote, small denominational churches.
But precisely at this point, we are faced with a severe perplexity. Not only was the world Nietzsche knew in his early years fast dissolving, not only were its remaining bits and pieces religiously handicapped and suspect, but following the excruciating struggles of the 20s and 30s, Machen himself, as if he were the main character in a farce, would father a group of those small denominational churches that the world of his family held in such disdain. Machen's exile, therefore, could not be more complete, more thorough. To be sure, he was admired from a distance by the old, gentle, conservative world. He was admired from a distance by his old world, by a conservative cultural elite, but he wasn't followed. He wasn't followed. Not even by those who profess a Christian orthodoxy. Neither had he maintained for for himself any place in the popular dominant culture of his time. A place in its well-tuned, manicured, mainline, softly, safely, liberal church. By the 30s, the victory of an alien gospel was complete. Machen's exile was inevitable as the church grew progressively quiet or ambiguous in its stand for Christian truth. Transcendence gave way to imminence. Particularism gave way to universalism. Eternal life gave way to the better life. The uniqueness of the ordained ministry gave way to an ecclesiastical egalitarianism. Systematic theology and other branches of theological science gave way to practical theology. Evangelicals and radicals embraced under a banner of establishmentarianism exhibiting a common mind in their preoccupation with the immediate situation and present observable gains. The person of God, his redemptive work and worship, took a back seat to man, his experience, and his needs. Jesus became paradigm for personal maturity and moral integrity, even a model for success. As divine Savior... He was progressively nondescript. A firm doctrinal Christianity was beaten, much like the man on the road down from Jerusalem to Jericho and left for dead by those like Harry Emerson Fosdick, who believed Christianity's essence to be found, quote, in its abiding experiences, unquote, but never in its doctrinal content. 
biblical givens and historical Christian convictions became optional theories, according to the Auburn affirmation. Confessional revisions became the agenda. Organizational loyalty and productivity were canonized. Administrative law was law. And you bow before it. With all of this, we must not think that the church was driven from the field or shuffled into cultural irrelevance by the dawning of a secular age. Rather, the church adapted, the mainline church adapted so well that in its own altered state it maintained, albeit more subtly, its dominant position in the emerging cultural consensus. It can be argued, of course, that the church had lost its influence and appeal, and that is proof American society rescinded its Christian heritage. For example, while Machen teaches at Princeton Seminary, Princeton University produces a new kind of graduate, one who takes center stage in F. Scott Fitzgerald's semi-autobiographical character, Amory Blaine. In the novel This Side of Paradise, Fitzgerald writes about Amory. Long after the towers and spires of Princeton were visible, with here and there a late burning light, and suddenly, out of clear darkness, the sound of bells, as an endless dream it went on, the spirit of the past brooding over a new generation, the chosen youth from the muddled, unchastened world still fed romantically on the mistakes and half-forgotten dreams of dead statesmen and poets. A new generation dedicated more than the past to the fear of poverty and the worship of success, grown up to find all gods dead, all wars fought, all faiths in man shaken. He stretched out his arms to the chrysalis radiant sky. I know myself, he cried, but that is all. What deliberate bigotry. How consistently immanentistic from below. Indeed, this side of paradise and always this side, you never reach Fitzgerald was reacting to the predictability of Princeton grads with an indulgent wail of dissent. One would think that the church might be a little hard on those graduates too, but much harder on Fitzgerald. However, the church now also lives this side of paradise. 
and while working to retain those polished Princetonians, it has simultaneously incorporated Fitzgerald's complaints. Thus, by easily expressing its sympathy for skepticism, even agnosticism and atheism expressed by the renegades, the church now guarantees its relevance. A new synthesis takes shape, as does a new ministry. A new ministry that makes room for unbelief if not intent upon justifying its own unbelief. Here is no bare liberalism, but a conservatism and liberalism. The conservatism works chiefly for executive and administrative uniformity. It is utterly intolerant. The liberalism parades placards of doctrinal breadth so broad as to include denial, while overlaying its message with demonstrations of compassionate involvement. The power of such a subtle and complex structure is difficult to overestimate especially when we realize that such power was not gained apart from the culture, but in concert with it. Machen stood against this structure and its power with all of his might. The cost to him was great, since in the end he was divested of not only his church, but of a place within the culture of which that church was an integral part. story of Machen stands carries us beyond his formative years proximate to that world of Sidney Lanier, that world of H.L. Mankin, that world of his family. His career covers, I believe, three distinct periods. But I want you to note as we go through each of these how you can see in them that Machen was excited to greater precision, but that in each of these periods he experienced an even deeper isolation. The first period. The first period moves from 1909 to to 1919. Set that in your mind. The period of the First World War, the events surrounding it. 1909 to 1919 and might well be called the church against the world. The church against the world. As yet, denominational issues seem remote and references to Presbyterianism by Machen quite general. 
Nevertheless, certain things are settled about the church. For instance, the year 1909 marked the 400th anniversary of Calvin's birth. And Machen had a minor role in the celebration of that event at Princeton Seminary. An address by Benjamin D. Warfield on Calvin's theology seems to have made a great impression upon him on that occasion. It was certainly the finest thing that I ever heard from Dr. Warfield, he wrote. Probably we go too far if we say that there was a, an awakening in Machen to Calvinism at this point. At least, however, his Calvinistic sympathies are plain, and from here on out they must be assumed. For Machen, however, the church that is Calvinistic must also maintain its commitment to an informed and intelligent ministry. In 1909, this also was brought into focus by the so-called student revolt at Princeton Seminary. Demanded by the students was a more practical curriculum. Machen replied, We are able to do little for our own generation, and we can only hope to conserve a spark of learning for some future awakening in the church's intellectual life. Other seminaries have yielded to the incessant clamor for the practical. I only hope the authorities will have the courage to keep our standard high, not bother about losses of students, and wait for a better time. It is the only course of action that can prove successful in the long run. Machen's warning here was in the interests of the church and sparing that church ministers who were, quote, pumped full of material which, without any real assimilation or any intellectual work of any kind, they can pump out again upon their unfortunate congregation. The church and the world came directly into view in Machen's significant 1912 address entitled Christianity and Culture. A prepared ministry leads the church in no retreat from its cultural task, but neither does it lead in a pursuit of cultural dominance. Instead, it preaches a message of consecration, the consecration in culture. No hiding place, no hiding behind an anti-intellectual pseudo-piety. Seminaries party to such a thing leave the church unequipped to meet the intellectual challenges of and to the faith. But lest anyone think Machen an advocate of an easy cultural relevance, he excoriates the church that in the name of relevance majors in matters about which all are agreed. Needed is a church unintimidated by the debate about sin, death, salvation, eternal life, and God, who cha whose champions fight against spiritual and intellectual indolence, who stand up to the attitude that is forever adopting, adapting itself to the fashions of the day. 
when he takes up the subject history and faith in his 1915 address, Machen clearly sets modern culture in its basic impulse over against the Bible. The church, however, wants both modern culture and the Bible. According to Machen, the pagan direction of culture forbids this, and if the church persists, she must come to ruin. His message goes out, therefore. The church has a calling, a calling that includes consecration in culture, but not compromise with it. But certainly, it will be objected, American culture is an exception. Is it? Machen's 1919 address entitled The Church in the War speaks in a shockingly blunt manner about post-war America and its church. It seems that even the church has been Americanized. It makes common cause with the nation in sanctifying the war dead and wounded in a gospel proclaiming the sufficiency of men who sacrificed themselves on the battlefield. No word about human unworthiness, no word about sin, no message about Christ's unique and efficacious sacrifice for sinners. Lost in this synthesis of culture and church is language about atonement, language about repentance, language about confession. Asserted is an inherently pagan notion of self-satisfaction. With the close of this first period, we find Machen in a precarious position. He has perceived the internal weakening of the church. He is clear about the opposition of the world to the truth and about the pagan culture, pagan character of culture, even American culture. He sounds no retreat, only resolute, articulate devotion to Christ and the Bible in the advance of the church's task of consecration. But despite the forward posture, the patterns of isolation have begun to appear as he places himself at odds with the structures that bind together American culture and ecclesiastical life. Second period. The second period of Bacon's struggle might be called the church against the churches. It begins in 1920 and lasts through 1928. This is the time when Machen enters the ecclesiastical arena in earnest. If the previous period had at its center his insistence upon the church's separation from the world, this era revolves around the uniqueness of the Presbyterian church in the face of increased pressure to dismiss that uniqueness. Many Presbyterians may be selling their birthright, but Machen becomes the advocate for Presbyterianism and its claims. 
The period begins with Machen attending his first General Assembly, where he meets head-on the 1920 Plan of Union. This plan, spurred on by post-war cultural concerns, as many ecumenical efforts tend to be, proposed the formulation of the United Church under the name the United Churches of Christ in America, composed of more than 20 denominations. Machen was shocked by the plan and insisted that the Presbyterian Church cannot, as the proposal suggests, dismiss its creeds to the level of purely denominational affairs. What possibly surprises us in Machen's opposition is the strength with which he asserts Presbyterian exclusivity. There's nothing reticent about him. His vision is of nothing less than Presbyterianism for the whole world. The plan of union dies in the presbyteries, but the spirit that devised it burned on. And so did Machen's opposition writing in 1927, for example, about what he called the attack upon Princeton Seminary, he says, as over against a reduced Christianity, we at Princeton stand for the full, glorious gospel of divine grace that God has given us in his word and that is summarized in the confession of faith in our church. We cannot agree with those who say that although they are members of the Presbyterian Church, they have not the slightest zeal to have the Presbyterian Church extended through the length and breadth of the world. As for us, we hold the faith of the Presbyterian Church, the great Reformed faith that is set forth in the Westminster Confession, to be true. And holding it to be true, it is intended for the whole world. We find Machen, therefore, pressing throughout this period for a confessional understanding of his church. If in the previous period the ministry was to be intelligent, in this period it is to be honest in terms of its vows. But more than a departure from historic Presbyterian doctrine is involved. As his popular book, Christianity and Liberalism, written in 1923, and his famous 1925 sermon, The Separateness of the Church, made plain a fatal cancer of unbelief has invaded the body. The Presbyterian Church must be preserved. The crying need of the hour is the health of this once virile denomination. Machen fears, however, that the disease is too widespread, that it has compromised the boards and courts of the Church. He poses the possibility of separation by those whose consciences cannot tolerate the situation any longer. Still, it would be unfair to say that he is as yet wholly negative about his church. He remains committed, certainly determined to fight before the onslaught of denominational and confessional relativity and the insidious malignancy of liberalism. What is becoming clear, however, is just how much the church, even the Presbyterian church, is moving in stride with an apostate culture. It is also clear that Machen will not fall. The last epoch of Machen's career can be called the church against the church. 
<clears throat> it stretches from 1929 to 1937. This is the time in which a true Presbyterian church is the objective. Prosecuted first in terms of the seminary. Princeton versus Westminster. Second in terms of missions. The PCUSA mission board versus the independent board. And third in terms of the church as a whole. The mainline Presbyterian denomination versus what would become known as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. As we might expect, this period witnesses in Machen an increasing frankness about the Reformed faith. At its beginning, with the 1929 opening of Westminster Seminary, he refers, as has been his manner, quite generally to the Reformed content of the Gospel. By 1936, he moves beyond generalities. His writings, but especially his radio talks, shimmer with a simple presentation of the Reformed doctrine. Two books produced by those talks, Christian Faith in the Modern World and the Christian View of Man, serve as a systematic theology in miniature. But very meaningful is Machen's last official public address to the Church, his sermon, Constraining Love, delivered at the Second General Assembly of the New Church in 1936. In exegeting the phrase, one died for all, from 2 Corinthians 5.14, he dismisses the universalistic and Arminian interpretation by way of an extensive defense of the limited atonement, where in his earlier years, and even as recently as the inception of this particular era, Machen's Calvinism had been indirect, now it is explicit. If this signals a maturation, it arrives apace the maturation of his own personal pilgrimage out of that old world, that old southern world, out of Sidney Lanier's world and Macon's world, into the new world, the world that has emerged with Machen opposed to both. The church preaches another gospel which is no gospel, from which little is excluded except the Calvinism Machen preaches. No dis more distressing example of this fact exists than the visit of John McNocker, the United Presbyterian Church of North America minister and president of Pennsylvania Seminary, to the 1934 Presbyterian Church USA General Assembly. McNocker has directed the UP side of the attempt at union between the UP Church and the PCUSA. On the floor of the assembly, he openly ridicules the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession, the Catechism, and is applauded. Things have moved far beyond mere confessional revision. The confession and its Calvinism are being shoved out the door. 
but don't give up hope. Coming in by another way are those accusers whose case against the church is that it has been utterly naive about evil. Needed, says Emil Brunner and Karl Barth, is talk about reprobation and election, sin and atonement, death and resurrection. But is the church cowering? Will it return to orthodoxy and its Calvinistic roots? Not at all. Besides, T.S. Eliot has just converted. And his 1930 poem, Ash Wednesday, <clears throat> means that transcendence and the supernatural are again respectable considerations for even the cultural elite. Is there any real change then that comes by way of neo-orthodoxy? in Neil Bruner, Karl Barth? Or is the omnivorous nature of the church and the new culture displayed once more? The synthetic church embraces a synthesis of biblical language and post-Kantianism. Harry Emerson Fosdick, the great liberal, feels compelled to deliver a message entitled, We Must Go Beyond Modernism. Neo-orthodoxy is the golden opportunity for adjustment, never repentance. But Machen's gospel demands repentance, and fewer and fewer are listening. Machen's isolation is now complete. The other world of Sidney Lanier, of H.L. Mencken, of even Machen's family, in the end, offers him little but its sympathy. The new emerging world of American progress, church and cultural alike, will not even offer him that. Instead, Machen receives the back of the hand. He is, to be sure, then, shut out. But he is also <coughs> shut up unto something else altogether. He is shut up unto the Bible and yet another world beyond the old self, beyond that culture that is now emerging, taking shape, in the 20th century. He is shut up to another world at the center of which is abiding communion with God in glory. He claimed in his writings that already this destination in that other world asserts itself in the true Church of Christ. And because of the intensity of his vision, he was shut up unto insistence upon that church's purity. If the church above is pure, the church below ought to be pure. 
At the same time, Machen is shut up unto a rigorous Calvinist, judged anathema and expendable by his church, the PCUSA, in the interest of relevance and survival. And he is shut up to a little company of the small denominational churches. The scourge of the earth. Disdainfully dismissed, hardly taken seriously by world churches. Mason's humiliation leaves him stripped. You tell me. What does he have left on the plains of the Dakotas where he died? Certainly not the cultured world that he grew up in. Not the cultural, cultured world that he knew <coughs> in Baltimore or at Princeton. Or even that world that he knew in Philadelphia. In the end, he is left only with Christ, and especially Christ's active obedience. For the sake of this Christ, he counts loss his richest gain and pours himself on all sides. Do you see it? The OPC begins where Machen ended, and that is her secret. That is her genius and her calling. She too has known Machen's humiliation and isolation, but also a glory that transcends the world and culture in which she finds herself. She is no mere American church, nor more of the same old Presbyterianism with an acculturated message. To be sure, the OPC continues to address the issues of the church and the church, the church and the churches, and the church and the world. But in the culture, is she to dominate, take over? Is she the purveyor of some sort of religious imperialism? Or is she to seek marriage with the culture and become indistinguishable from it? No, in conclusion, the posture she and Machen don must be the same. It must be that of their savior. The posture is one of a servant in the midst of a world that does not understand and in large measure doesn't care. Nation, culture, and the church. Here is a remarkable pilgrimage of incredible substance. You might say, what an incredible loss to which it could be replied but what an incredible
our God, we too are shut up unto the Bible and unto another world, at the center of which is abiding eternal communion with you. And even now, Lord, we have the down payment of that inheritance in the Holy Spirit. And even now, we are blessed with the fellowship that we shall experience in joy forever. May we be insistent upon the authority of the Scriptures, and may we be insistent upon the purity of the Church, regardless of what it costs us. Even though we may be the scourge of the earth, even though we might be part of those small denominational churches that hardly concern world children, let us be content to serve you, Lord, in that place where you have called us, and that with all humility, knowing that we are saved by grace. We rejoice in the salvation we have. We bless you for it. In Jesus' name.